0: Yeah, thanks so, thanks so much, uh, Clark. Um, I, uh, it's really wonderful to be invited here, though it's a bit of a, a plunge for me too because uh, I, I studied um, uh, philosophy and I studied uh, in, in um, Belgium, did my PhD in Belgium, <laughs> and I wrote my dissertation on um, Soren Kierkegaard, who is a, a Danish uh, philosopher and um, theologian. And George Grant, um, like I claim no expertise on George Grant whatsoever. George Grant is someone I've always liked to read a little bit. Um, he, I think, is a very uh, powerful thinker. Though, um, as you'll see, like this is basically, well, just, he wrote uh, four books about this size. And mostly they're collections of essays. So come and take a look. He, he's not like a prolific uh, writer, mm-hmm. so he doesn't. Um, he's just extremely thoughtful, and everything he wrote um, is is very um, <laughs> d- dense, yes. and 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 but also very kind of. He's just well. I'm going to talk about this, so I won't. Uh, but very. He's just involved in the in his in his way of thinking, uh, and he's also deeply challenging. Um, so first of all, I want to say that I wasn't. Um, I, this is my first evening at Labrie, uh, so I am very uh, happy to be here and to experience a little bit what goes on here. Um, but um, I, I'm going to apologize for my paper a little bit because uh, it, um, if it's starting to get a little bit too technically philosophical uh, for some of you who don't have a philosophical background... Um, Um, We can start to unpack some of that Uh, be a little bit patient um, because philosophy sometimes requires patience because what seems completely bewildering at first, you just need to kind of get massaged into the language a little bit and and you'll start to figure it out a little bit better as we go along. Um, But if you're completely bamboozled, uh, stop me and we'll try to unravel things as we go. Um, um, And um, otherwise, of course discussion is, is, is open uh, at the end. I've, I've written a little bit of a formal paper here, um, so I don't know what the tone is normally at these talks, but, um, um, but Clark said write a paper, so I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, is there any other thing I need to say? Grant is a political philosopher, um, but I think he would consider himself, politics was a side issue. and and, uh, some of that will come out what he's really uh concerned about is the question which will you'll hear again and again and again what does it mean uh, to be human Mm -hmm. um grant was uh a a christian um but at the same time he yeah you read a lot of his works and you wouldn't um know it uh he's not um engaging uh like the typical language of christianity uh um, all that often, uh, but it is deeply part of um, all that he does um, and embodies the whole direction of his, of his thinking. So um, I think that's important because uh, he felt that to actually be a little bit more upfront about his faith in the academy um, um, ensured that he had no audience uh, amongst his uh, colleagues. So um, he thought that he had done that, uh, made a mistake in his early career, and so actually toned that down uh, to, in order for people to actually listen to him. But here it goes. I will begin my paper now. Why George Grant? So this is called Intimations of Deprival, uh, and that's a wonderful phrase, and, uh, and we'll explore what it means as we go. But it's from a, um, uh, the last tiny little essay uh, that ends this book, uh, technology and Empire. Mm-hmm. And so it's five pages long. I'm going to read, if I have time, a read from it from a little bit at the very end. Uh, but it's something that is, uh, I would encourage everyone to look up. And five pages, not that long. You can manage. Okay. Uh, Intimations of Deprival, George Grant and the Forgetfulness of Modernity. Okay. So why George Grant? George Grant uh, was born. Totally into uh, white Toronto privilege, into a very uh, well-connected, well-educated family on both his parents' side. Uh, He had a, surprisingly, you know, to me, a a little bit, if you know something about him, he had a a bit of a public profile in the um, 70s and uh, 80s. Uh, because he did these uh, popular, um, surprisingly popular, <laughs> CBC radio programs, which some of the books, um, mm-hmm. like for instance, uh, Time is History. I say it's surprising because that whole thing is about uh, Nietzsche's philosophy of, of time. Mm-hmm. And this was a CBC series that uh, like thousands of people tuned into, which is <laughs> kind it very interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder where those went. (laughs) Um, And this other little book that you see, Lament for a Nation, really struck a chord. I'm not going to talk about that. But that's where he gets his reputation for being a political philosopher, Lament for a Nation. Um, But he was obviously not a prolific uh, writer. Um, He did plan to write a large book um, at the end of his life. uh, But he never um, wondered, uh, he never managed. And if if you read um, Grant, uh, which I I do uh, encourage you to do, um, you kind of wonder if that was possible for him. His arguments are just so not just carefully wrought. There, um, he's just so involved. Uh, you can feel him sometimes struggling over every word, uh, not because writing was maybe difficult for him, but he asked himself was asking himself con- constantly, is this judicious? is it fair? Is it true? Um, And he wouldn't allow anything to stand that uh, he couldn't answer yes to those questions. Uh, So um, one of the reasons why I think Grant remains important for us is as a model for thinking. Uh, When you read Grant, uh, you really are initiated into somebody's mind unfolding a problem step uh, by step and not just in a a logical way like not it's not just cognitive it's involving his whole life his 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 spirit his experiences Um, and we can learn I think sort of by reading and maybe imitating him how to be astonished he begins always with these exclamations of astonishment like, um, imagine that this thinker was thinking this. Like, where did he get that from? And this astonishment uh, with things that we normally or often take as everyday uh, was always the beginning of um, his thinking. That he could learn to be surprised or, 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 or uh, wonder, full of wonder at something. And that's where he, he would begin his thinking. And when you begin to read Grant, uh, you realize that um, this exercise that we call thinking is not really an exercise of individuals alone in their in their study. Um, And that's not even to say that, um, of course, um, to to begin thinking, we read other people, we have conversations. It's more than that. Um, We can. uh, uh, Thinking, he he says, always. Um, occurs uh, within a frame or an environment uh, of the historical epoch in which we inhabit and I want you to um, really be awake to what that means because for him as we'll see there are things um, because we live in a certain historical time uh, that we cannot think anymore Um, Think we are we are locked within the terms of our own uh, age, our, um, and we can. So you're already getting an expanded sense of think. So thinking is not just an intellectual exercise; it's how we live, in a way. We're we're, we're so we're, we live within an environment, and we can't um, think uh, just like we can't be outside of, of that environment. So when Grant says things like, and we shall hear him say, say these things, technology is our destiny. That's what he means. He means we live in this environment, uh, this historical environment that for all sorts of historical reasons, which we won't talk about, uh, has come to define uh, how we can approach Uh, or how we do approach the world and live in the world. Um, Not necessarily completely captivated as individuals, but completely captivated as society, Mm -hmm. as societies. Uh, So he talks about um, following people like Jacques Ellul and uh, Heidegger. He he describes our epoch as uh, the technological age. And he doesn't mean by this, This this is difficult, uh, techno- uh, this is difficult um, already, because what he means by that isn't just that we've got lots of machines and we use computers every day. Uh, um, he means by uh, technological or technology, a way, of, um, um, a way of thinking, a way of being. Uh, technology is for him uh, our consciousness, the way we apprehend the world, the way we comport ourselves within the world um so um so that's important for you to understand um but it's it's difficult to understand uh, he says that technology uh he, at one point he says uh we are technology so we can't separate ourselves from from the the way we live within the world uh so Technology is the environment by which we see, we understand the world, we understand ourselves, our past, and our future. And I think most importantly for Grant, technology governs what it is possible for us to hope. So when we look towards the future, it's governed somehow um, by this technological consciousness. When was he born? Eight, uh, 1918. And died. 88. Okay. I'm gonna do a little biography. Okay. In a yeah. So it's the role of the thinker, he said, to uh, push against the technologically defined limits of our language and our thinking and to attempt to bring those limits to light, to problematize them, to reflect on what the limits mean for us as human beings. And as he says, uh, to bring to light our darkness as darkness. Uh, And yet... He's very aware, and that's what this essay um, uh, platitude is all about. Uh, the thinker, nobody is has is granted the ability to take what another thinker called uh, a view from nowhere. So, or we we can never have, we can never take an a-historical standpoint. We're always planted within a certain historical environment, where one's thinking is free from being conditioned by the world we have been given. Uh, to think and to live and to hope within. One of the ironies of modernity, as Grant often pointed out, is that the structure of modern technological consciousness, so that environment moder- modernity has bequeathed to us, so uh, is a scientism that has at one major pillar the goal of exactly that, of exactly an ahistorical view from, from nowhere, a purely objective standpoint. Mm-hmm. So of course we know one goal of science is an absolutely objective apprehension of 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 truth, and uh, one main intention of the scientific method is to ensure as little human interference in the data as as possible. Um, and of course that view from nowhere, which which, which is um, uh <laughs> great to see you. Uh, that view from nowhere has resulted in um, spectacular results in, in the lab uh, under artificially controlled experiment conditions uh, when examining very specific kinds of empirical problems. But the same technique um, spectacularly fails when pursuing ethical questions. The kinds of questions we need to ask in order to be human. Questions, Grant would say, such as, what is justice? And when we ask these kinds of questions, no one is or can be historically free. Our thinking is always conditioned within the intellectual environment of our age. Now, we might begin to reconstruct what it, but through our reading and research and things like that, what, uh, what it was like to see the world and our human place within it as an ancient Greek. We can read the Greeks. We can try to reconstruct what it might have been like to um, see uh, the world as a Greek ancient Greek saw it, but we can't live within that reconstruction. We can't put ourselves in the, in that environment. Uh, moreover, it is uh, it's really difficult, and this is the struggle uh, grant always has, and not only grant, but it's really difficult to express in language um, the environment of one's epoch precisely because this entails being able to examine it somehow from the outside. And this is precisely what he's saying is not possible to get, to get outside the environment, like a fish outside of its lived environment in the water. Uh, And so the best the thinker can do is constantly be butting up and trying to delineate the limits of, of what it's possible to think. Uh, So what then happens when the only publicly persuasive language is the language of the view from nowhere? So if you understand what I mean. In, in our age, if this view from nowhere is somehow holds up the ideal um, for a public discourse about what we, um, what, what we can say about truth or what we can um, argue... Um, What happens when that's the only kind of language that our politicians can use to uh, create policy? When in the public square, we're talking about um, ethical uh, problems? Uh, Well, he says, and we can see, some absurdities are created in the first place. I I don't want to uh, make fun of anybody, but there was an absurdity that showed up in our, um, it's called the Diocesan Post, which is kind of the Anglican newspaper. And one of my colleagues was doing some research and he ascertained that um, in a certain program, the loneliness of the control group of seniors decreased by 17.9%. <laughs> <laughs> so it's an attempt to quantify what's not available for quantification. It's, it's just like intuitively that doesn't make any sense. But you understand why he's writing in that sort of language because it's the only kind of language uh, that can influence policy, that can influence public decision making. It's the only kind of language we, we actually accept within our public kind of debating, um, and it's absurd. But uh, more importantly, Grant would say that having to answer questions such as what is justice in the only way we are given to think them, a way which at the same time makes them unthinkable, leaves us in a serious quandary. The ontology of our age makes impossible certain ways of thinking that are nevertheless, in Grant's opinion, and I agree with Grant, uh, imperative if we are to remain human. And this is what Grant calls the terrible darkness of our time, that there are some things that we are unable uh, to think, such as what is justice, um, that um, is essential for us to be able to think to remain human, but um, the mode of thought or mode of consciousness that we've inherited historically makes thinking these things impossible. So that's what he calls the terrible darkness of our time. That the intellectual environment of modernity makes it impossible to think precisely those things which it is most important to think, what truth is, or justice, or goodness. Now, of course, modern people still talk a lot about those things, like about what justice is, but it is the task of the thinker to ask, What are we today talking about when we talk about those things? Upon what grounds do we base such talk? For another of Grant's major points is that if as a society there is no, and this is my word and not his, metaphysical ground to answer, uh, uh, there is no metaphysical ground to the answer it gives to the question of justice if our understanding of justice does not include a notion of some good to which we are beholden as human beings, if justice, in other words, is simply something we have all agreed upon, perhaps for utilitarian reasons or other reasons, then that puts civilization in grave danger. It means, in Grant's view, uh, that our sense of justice ultimately comes to be predicated on the same will to power that is at work in the will to mastery, which is at the root of the scientific method, which we talked about before, to control the environment, to predict all outcomes. Uh, When this is so, our liberal democracy is in danger of succumbing to tyranny and fascism, which is so interesting because of that best-selling book right now. Uh, Reading Grant is so amazing because you read him and you realize he was writing some of this stuff 40, 50 years ago and it's, coming to pass uh, um, in front of our very eyes Uh, for in our uh, in our in our case when we talk about justice we are not talking about something human beings are fit for something that defines what it means to be human Uh, something in the service of which makes us truly human but we are talking only about something by which we aim to serve ourselves as human beings And this makes us susceptible to the current expression of whatever prevailing powerful will there might be. Fascism, he says. Um, Of course, as a Christian, uh, something in the service of which makes us truly human is what the tradition, the Christian tradition, calls agape, love. So um, the kinds of dangers Grant warned against are now... everyday realities to us. The universities are no longer places where open debate is possible. Mm -hmm. People riot in the streets because in the newspapers last week, a woman is giving a lecture presenting an opinion that differs from their own. Uh, Lies become acceptable to the public when that public believes those lies serve their own ideological purposes. Mm -hmm. Um, And when these things are common, which they seem to be coming, not only democracy, but Grant would argue our very humanity is in danger. So uh, Grant remains an important thinker because the darkness he tries in all his writing to name remains our darkness. So I'm just going to talk a little bit about who he was now, a little bit of on his biography. Uh, Grant as I said, was born in uh, 1918. He attended Upper Canada College, where his father was the principal, did his degree at Queen's, where his grandfather had been uh, quite a very well-known principal. Uh, yeah, so very much a part of the establishment. And uh, that was obviously a privilege, but also came to plague play. Um, because later critics uh, of his uh, work, his, and, you know, he was a conservative, uh, Argued that he was desperately clinging on uh, to a world that was changing in which, uh, you know, he was losing his place in. Uh, but in fact, Grant's view was precisely the opposite. He said it was precisely the liberalism he was attacking that was the ideology upon upon which his privilege was founded. Uh, in 1939, he won, won a Rhodes Scholarship and went to study law in Oxford. But um, he was a committed pacifist. But he felt as the war was raging on around him, he felt increasingly uncomfortable about being a student and comfortable Oxford. So uh, when the Battle of Britain began, he volunteered to be something that is called an air raid precautions warden in the east of London, which meant he was first on the scene um, when the bombings began. Uh, in the And he was in the most heavily bombed areas of the city. Um, according to his biographer, this grueling experience of violence and death broke him... <clears throat> broke him forever from the comfortable liberalism in which he had been raised. And it also destroyed his health. After a year, and despite his pacifism, um, he tried to sign up, but was turned down because of signs of tuberculosis. So then he didn't know what to do, so he ran away to work on a farm. And it was at this point um, in December 1949, while bicycling to work one morning, That he experienced a sudden total conviction that beyond the chaos of the world, there was eternal order. That God existed and that we are not our own.
1: Uh, (laughs) uh,
0: I think that's a wonderful expression. Um, Not that we are not alone, but that we are not our own. There's a difference there. And this certainty lasted all his life. So after a war, he returned, uh, he, he went back to get um, nursed back to health in, uh, in Canada. After the war ended, he went back to study, um, no longer law, but uh, philosophy and theology. And he met and married a woman, Sheila Allen, who, uh, and they returned to Canada for him to take up a position at Dalhousie in Halifax. They had six kids. And. Uh, and in the 1950s, he started uh, to write and host uh, all of those CBC programs for which I probably, you know, you have to have been uh, listening in the 1950s and 60s and a little bit in the 70s. But uh, he became a best known for those series. Uh, he eventually taught for 20 years um, at McMaster in Hamilton and uh, before uh, returning to Dalhousie. Um, for the last few years before he retired. And he died young. He died at the age of 70, working on a, what, he, what he thought would be his magnum opus, a defense of Christianity against Martin Heidegger. Okay, uh, so now I'm going to delve a little bit more into George uh, Grant's thinking, so um, bear with me. Um, every topic Grant approached, whether politics or education, religion, or ethics, he did so through the lens not of a pre-given answer, for Grant was an enemy of every ideology, but beginning with the kind of astonishment, as I said, which leads to the asking of questions. And Grant's prevailing question was this, in any matter under consideration, what is the implied answer or the underlying presupposition that that matter contains To the question, what does it mean to be human? So Grant always sought to understand the metaphysics or presuppositions or ontology hidden in, say, the political events of the nation. What understanding of what it means to be human, he would ask, is presupposed in the push for free trade or in the legislation permitting abortion on demand? In the politi- policies of the Trudeau, former Trudeau government or in the growing he- hege- he- hegemony of computers and daily life. What makes these things possible? Why are we doing these things? What is the presupposed mm-hmm. flourishing of human being and the definition of what it means to be human um, that's embodied in that sense of uh, understanding of flourishing? present in all of those things decisions that we're making as a nation and as a people and as a culture so this way of wondering of being astonished at why things are the way they are makes reading his commentary on the politics of his day seem like a struggle for something far more important than public policy it seems like a struggle for our humanity what does it mean to be human what are we fitted for Or in the words of a platitude, is there some good which is necessary to man as man? And this is the question at the root of all Grant's huge capacity for questions. Now, already this makes Grant a marked man in today's philosophical culture. Grant was or yearned for it to be possible, I think, to be a metaphysician. He was kind of a Platonist at heart. Uh, while being deeply appreciative of the critique of metaphysics of Heidegger and the impossibility of metaphysics in the technological society. So he was trying to do something he knew in a way was, it was impossible to do. Um, and f- for that reason, perhaps it would be best to style Grant as a negative theologian if you know something about that tradition. And I think that that's exactly what his essay, uh, A Platitude, is really about acknowledging that we are unable to speak precisely that word. And by word, I don't mean something that comes out of your mouth. I mean whole. Think of the reason why we call Christ the word. Um, We are unable to speak precisely that word, which ought to be ours to speak as human beings. Grant's effort was to trace how that darkness, that inability to speak what ought to be ours to speak, that forgetfulness haunts all our current institutions. As a platitude makes evident, uh, Grant found himself caught. Modernity has answered the question of what it means to be human in terms of what often is called negative freedom. That is, to be human is to be free from every restraint in order to determine for ourselves what we will become. I don't recall Grant himself using the term negative freedom, and that may be perhaps because the phrase does not evince enough the active drive that governs and directs our being as such freedom. Namely, modernity's modernity's belief in the triumph of the will. That is to say, it's belief that the human will is beholden to nothing but itself, serves only itself, or as Grant expresses it, again in that essay, freedom as the pure will to will but otherwise grant understood that the question what does it mean to be human or what is to humanity's most abundant flourishing modernity's answer our answer the one we can't help but live is that it there is no meaning other than the human will to the creation of meaning So meaning, therefore, we create ourselves. What it means to be human, using Nietzsche's stark image, is to be a self-propelling wheel. For us, for modern humanity, there is no answer to the question, what are we fitted for, other than we are fitted for nothing except self-determining. There is nothing given, nothing in nature or transcending nature, that shapes, guides, directs our struggles and striving as individuals or as nations and societies in the ethical life, in the practicalities of how we ought to live. Now, this word ought has become for us, he says, quite literally a word with no universal claim. And he wrote an essay um, called The Computer Does Not Impose on Us the Ways It Should Be Used, to argue precisely the reverse, um, the computer in fact does impose on us all the ways in which uh, it, it is used uh, he, but he, he argues in that uh, in that essay the word should in that title, as in the word as the word ought, appeals to an ethical constant or eternality, his word I would say transcendence, so it appe- appeals to an ethical. Uh, transcendence um, that gives us knowledge of ought in terms of what it is good or not good for human beings to do but grant says the intellectual life which allowed the coming to be of computers has also made should unthinkable So, Grant found himself caught because despite our inability to think goodness outside of the destiny of the pure will to will, nevertheless, his heart told him, as we heard in his description of his conversion experience, that beyond the chaos of the world there is eternal order, that God exists and we are not our own. Grant's whole effort might be seen as a paradoxical attempt to do what he knew was impossible to do, to bring this, his heart's knowledge, to thought and his whole criticism of modernity was based on the fact that modernity and the technological will to power made this coming together of heart and mind impossible that's my interpretation nevertheless as a christian he was certain of this that human truth lay on the side of the disciplined heart and grant thus felt that modernity robbed him and robbed all of us of wholeness for it divides our lives into two. For to a, for to a hu- huge degree, we cannot live humanly in the intellectual environment, the modern consciousness that is technology. If we follow the line of modernity uncritically, we end up in the situation we find ourselves now in, threatened by the creations of our own making, of our own will to overcome chance, now, by the word chance, Grant means that means all that we do not choose for ourselves. So the technological will to power, mm-hmm. he says, is the, the will um, to overcome chance, by which he means all that we don't choose, our births, our deaths, time and space, sex, wilderness. Um, mm-hmm. We just had a, a, a debate in our, our church uh, around um, um, medically assisted death and uh um I was reading George Grant while this was going on in pre- preparation for this talk and he was um really against uh the legislation allowing for abortion on demand, and he said this will lead to um on us wanting to control um all of the other side of life too mm-hmm. our um how we how we die and when we die, everything coming under technological control and it's kind of. Chilling to mm. see um, it, act, our lives actually playing out in the ways in these ways that he uh, predicted. So uh, the technological will to power seeks to control all that remains outside of rational systematized control. Our efforts in this direction are now threatening us both invisible externals and uh, George Grant before his time was talking about the environmental threat, and in invisible internals, so those moral threats where we are unable to impose limits on what we can do because the will serves nothing but the will. So, for example, stem cell research or human cloning or fascism. Nevertheless, the very fact that I think that we are gathered here tonight Anxious about so many things that are going on in the world, is some proof that we are not completely trapped uh, by technology. Mm-hmm. Even though we are unable to outthink it, get outside of it, we are able on some level. This isn't Grant. This is me. But on some level, I think we're able to outlove it. Um, we can be aware that something <coughs> is wrong, even though that we can't jump outside of it. Uh, There are springing up all around us what Grant called monsters. Uh, And he takes that from the Latin monera, meaning warnings. Springing up all around us warnings, monstrous warnings, both visible, Mm -hmm. he said the decay of the oceans, and invisible. uh, Those absence to ethical limits governing the technological will to power. Um, Yet in our private lives... At least where we continue to have experiences of transcendence, of loving goodness, which can convince us that we are not uh, our own, even if these leave us bifurcated, since there is no available public lam- language by which we are able to share them. And these experiences, according to Grant, are extremely important, for they speak to us of a reality that we are unable to think. Now, Grant had a cottage on Georgian Bay, and he once said to his good friend, the poet Dennis Lee, in true Platonic style, that learning attentive love for this one concrete place was a kind of practice in loving the eternal, even in the darkness of our age. For we cannot become aware of darkness unless we have an experience of light by which the darkness might appear as darkness in contrast. And that is the platitude by which that essay, A Platitude, is named. And I'm going to quote him here. Any intimations of deprival are precious because they are the ways through which intimations of good, unthinkable in the public terms, may yet appear to us. The affirmation stands. How can we think deprivation unless the good which we lack is somehow remembered? To reverse the platitude, we are never more sure that air is good for animals than when we are gasping for breath. The language of the good is not, then, a completely dead language, but one that must, even in its present disintegration, be recollected, even as we publicly let our freedom become ever more increasingly the pure will-to-will. So the pure will-to-will in the direction of the overcoming of chance as I have said, is Grant's definition of the being of technology and technolo- which is us. Technology, he wrote, is the ontology of the age. It is for us a destiny. And I for one haven't been able to think why this is this we can deny that statement. And it looks like this destiny will push us to the brink of precipices we are only now just beginning to imagine. And yet, we are helpless, it would seem, to do anything about. For although I celebrate the Greta Thunbergs of this world, the fact is, just as Grant said it would be, all of our solutions to the crises that technology is bringing upon us are by the necessity imposed upon us by this destiny, also technological. But unless we begin to be able to impose the kind of limits that only, that only a resurrected sense of our indebtedness to a good which transcends humanity can provide, precisely those limits which the coming to be of technology have darkened beyond our public vision, no new technology can or will save us. That is no doubt an extremely difficult thought. And I want in conclusion just to retrace some of the ways we got there um, using slightly different language to help us just think through again. So uh, just just uh, for a very brief summary in conclusion. According to Grant, for pre-modern people, the word will meant appropriate choosing by rational souls. But for us moderns, the word will means resolute mastery of ourselves and the world. What this means is that for modern humanity, there are no natural or given limits on our willing. There's nothing to say that you shouldn't do that. Um, um, There was one scientist, he quotes, that says, if the experiment is sweet, then we do it. Right. There's no way to put um, limits on those things. The only limits on our will are those imposed by the will. So that uh, is a contest of wills that too easily turns over into a revaluation of values of the kind we are now witnessing in the USA, in parts of Europe, in Brazil. And if we're honest with ourselves, perhaps more quietly, but also in our own country too there are no limits given limits to our drive for mastery over human and non-human nature for our willing does not serve and is not disciplined by any overarching service to god to justice to beauty nobility or truth and it's our definition it's by our definition of of the will that we define those things rather than those things defining our will that's That's the reversal that we have to try to think. Because of this, there is no publicly uh, (coughs) persuasive way to either ask or answer the question, is such and such a technology good for us? Mm -hmm. Should we go ahead and do it? We have no way of measuring any new technology except in the language of technology, the language of the pure will-to-will. No way, that is, except in the language that already defines human flourishing in terms of negative freedom and technological self-determination. Precisely that language which has emptied the intelligibility of the language of limits for modern people. There may be, of course, token resistance. As, for example, in the case of using human embryos and stem cells research, there were some people that said, no, we shouldn't do this. But since those who desire to recognise limits are within a publicly living language are sorry, but since those who desire to recognise limits, like those people, are without a publicly living language to express their concerns, the results of these kinds of debates are always foregone foregone conclusions. Um, I think that's just an experience we all have. Being without limits means we find ourselves at the mercy of uncontrollable and increasingly accelerated change. We find ourselves the servants of technology. And while we talk about our machines becoming more and more human, many of us painfully suspect the opposite to be true. That we are becoming increasingly like our machines and our lives increasingly shaped in obedience to the needs of technology rather than the other way around. And that was exactly the danger that Grant was so desperately trying to speak. Do I have any time? Because uh, what I would like to do is just quote a little bit from that essay you have lots of, of, of platitude. No. Okay. Um, so this this essay was published way back in 1969. Um, which i find kind a of little bit astonishing. So that was even before I was born. <laughs> um, and I, um, it's, as I said, a five-page article. Um, and it's not filled with um, philosophical jargon. So if you take the time, even those people who aren't philosophically educated will understand it. And I've just chosen uh, I've a page of it to read to you it's mm-hmm. it's not one page i've jumped around just to give you a sense of his the way he thinks and the language his, his language uh which i find uh uh profound haunting and um even strangely beautiful
1: what's the title of the article
0: it's called a platitude a platitude, a platitude. yeah and it's in that book uh technology and empire
2: we have
0: a copy you do you it's in the library Hallelujah. <laughs> good, I was looking for Grant. Couldn't find Philosophy is over there. In the dark corner. <laughs> in, the dark <laughs> in the dark corner. In the dark corner. Yes. So uh, this, is, this is Grant speaking now. We can hold in our minds the enormous benefits of technological society, but we cannot so easily hold the ways it may have deprived us, because technique is ourselves. All description or definitions of technique which place it outside ourselves hide us, hide from us what it is. This applies to the simplest accounts which describe technological advances, new machines and inventions, as well as the more sophisticated, which include within their understanding the whole hierarchy of interdependent organizations and their methods. Technique comes forth from and is sustained in our vision of ourselves as creative freedom, making ourselves and conquering the chances of an indifferent world. It is difficult to think whether we are deprived of anything essential to our happiness, just because the coming to be of the technological society has stripped us above all of the very systems of meaning which disclosed the highest purposes of man as man, in terms of which, therefore, we could judge whether an absence of something was, in fact, a deprival. Our vision of ourselves as freedom in an indifferent world could only have arisen insofar as we had analyzed to disintegration those systems of meaning given in myth, philosophy, and revelation, which had held sway over our progenitors. For those systems of meaning are um, all mitigated, both our freedom, imposed limits, and the indifference of the world. And in so doing, put limits of one kind or another on our interference with chance and the possibilities of its conquest. Without such a system of meaning, how do we know what is worth doing with our freedom? there is no possibility of answering the question, freedom for what purposes? Such may indeed be the true account of the human situation, an unlimited freedom to make the world as we want in a universe indifferent to what purposes we choose. But if our situation is such, then we do not have a system of meaning. The language of what belongs to man as man has long since been disintegrated. Have we not been told that to speak of what belongs to man as man is to forget that man creates himself in history? All languages of good, except the language of the drive to freedom, have disintegrated. So it is just to pass some antique wind to speak of goods that belong to man as man. Yet the answer is also the same. If we cannot so speak, then we can only either celebrate or stand in silence before that drive. Only in listening for the intimations of deprival can we live critically in the dynamo. Any intimations of authentic deprival are precious because they are the ways through which intimations of good, unthinkable in the public terms, may yet appear to us. The affirmation stands. How can we think deprivation unless the good which we lack is somehow remembered? To reverse the platitude, we are never more sure that air is good for animals than when we are gasping for breath. Some men who have thought deeply seem to deny this affirmation. But I have never found any who, in my understanding of them, have been able, through the length and breadth of their thought, to make the language of good secondary to the language of freedom. It is for this reason that men find it difficult to take despair as the final stance in most circumstances. And if we make the affirmation that the language of good is inescapable, do we not have to think its content? And in that last sentence, I think, is Grant's challenge to all of us who long for a way out of our present crisis. If we make the affirmation of the language, if we make the affirmation that the language of good is inescapable, if we can't stop talking about what it means to live the good life, to be human, do, not, do we not have to think it's content? Mm-hmm. So that's Grant's challenge.
3: yeah yeah great like great this, let's so whatever happens so you really set it. us up really well thank you so much um, I think that you hit the bar just love oh great and, uh, and
4: I think that we have a lot to talk about good, so good. good. <laughs> Travis could you reflect on Hitler and Nazi Germany <laughs> <laughs> no, in yeah in the context they were very, their mythology was uh-huh. very large on triumph of the will being right. and Nietzsche, etc. Right, right. I can't even pronounce his name properly. Nietzsche, yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yet, there was a famous quote from someone in one of the ranks listening to one of Hitler's speeches that he has given us freedom from freedom. In mm. uh-huh. other words, this radical sense of will. they hadn't individualized it, perhaps, the way we have. And so it was for the leader to have that radical and for us to follow that leader. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if some of what Grant was going through in his finding is the epiphany of a, of a sense of order. He would have had a lot of time to reflect while he was going through the bombs of London mm-hmm. around... Where that philosophy of will and freedom might lead. So just a reflection, because I don't think when he talks of the modern age, I think part of what he was doing was re- was a reflection of what had happened in Germany and impacted Europe and the world.
0: Oh, most definitely. Like for for him, it, I mean, it's his life. for 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 yeah. for for him, um, something. Um, this is hard to say publicly, <laughs> so um, and I sometimes get myself into trouble. Um, oh, good. <laughs> um, but for for for, uh, for Grant, um, the same liberalism by which we believe um, on our university campuses, just just mm-hmm. in what we believe, uh, is freeing us to be ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he also said that same liberalism is what unleashed um, Hitler.
4: And I'm not arguing um, it doesn't. No, no, I I know,
0: I know. But we have to be careful because uh, that same will to our um, defining for ourselves what it means to be human um, is the same force um, behind um, fascism. Um, And it's so interesting. I haven't read it yet. Has anybody read that new book, Fascism, which is basically, no, my, my, my dad was reading it this summer and my aunt was reading it this summer. So I thought it was in a lot of people's hands, but there's a new book. I can't, I don't even know who the author is, uh, called Fascism. And it's basically comparing the rise of Hitler with Trump.
2: Um,
0: and so, um, um, I think it would be an interesting to look at because I th- I think it's th- exactly the kinds of things that Grant was warning us against. We're putting our democracies in in danger. Our our this way of being. Um, completely, um our ways of thinking, uh, being completely governed by this negative freedom, of self determination, self invention, um both as individuals but more importantly as as societies and without any way of speaking of good that sets limits on and therefore define, like gives shape to outside of our own will um what we ought to become uh then we become actually it's 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 uh it's one will it's the it it becomes might is right, even though we describe we, we we hide that from ourselves. I saw it
5: yeah. Um, I, I, I'm not pushing back on anything um, that was that uh, said uh-huh. um, in, in its context. But, you know, like, uh, maybe I'm going to nuance it as much as uh, from my perspective. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, you, you have a line, like, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their Creator with yes. any among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yes. I mean, that document itself is a negative freedom document. Yes. Um, and there, it, obviously the American founding fathers were deists, um, and, and so they, um, and I think Benjamin Franklin, you know, became a little bit more sympathetic, say, to, um uh the the religious sentiments when he realized that his uh, best friend started cheating on or, or sleeping with his fiance or whatever because you know oh, he was a deist and he had no morals and such mm-hmm. but I mean that's been a very vigorous liberty sort of country for a very long time with at least politically an, uh, a, a negative freedom emphasis mm-hmm. um, even if... Say, you know, in this instance, maybe there should be a divide between the political emphasis versus, say, the, um, the internalized sense, in, this, in the same way that there could be a distinction drawn between the feminism of um, Mary Wollstonecraft or the feminism of Simone de Beauvoir, where you have uh, a, a, an inter- like, do we, are we talking about the internalized thing mm-hmm. or are we talking about the political thing? But I don't know. Um, I'm rambling. I don't have. I don't have a point. But I, I'm, I'm. I'm just. I'm just trying to. will draw let's, that delineation yeah. between perhaps a political will to will as a as a goal politically in order to create a neutral space, mm-hmm. and then maybe what we fill that space with as being perhaps more. Maybe that's not a good way to fill the space with. The same value that we create the space with.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so Grant was a big enemy of the word value. Um, okay, but I, I won't get into that. So, but the 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 uh, um, Grant was a su- subtle thinker and and an honest thinker. So, uh, I would say two things. Just, re- and I'm not, not even if sure if I'm responding to the kind of thing you're asking about. But two things came up in my mind when you're talking. One. Um, I you know um history moves in ways that you can't um you can't always foresee uh w- w- the trajectory a certain line of thinking is going to take 200 years down 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 the road mm-hmm. right so um y- um it's true that we have a negative fr- freedom was creating um something exciting and 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 wonderful um and for a long, long time, it was already there. Was it was already contained within a society that it was pushing it, itself pushing against. But there was already uh, understood uh, kinds of limits to those societies. Um, um, the, the the pure release of um, where where the limits have just disintegrated completely is something that we began to experience in the 20th century. I mean, we began to really experience in the 20th century. There's never been so much bloodshed. It's popular to say and common to say as in the 20th century, there's never been as much brutality and, and, um, and wanton killing as in the 20th century. All. So something was released. Some, some sense of limit was disintegrated, gone. Uh, And so, of course, then we have to look back in our history and wonder, where did that come from? And that's the kind of thing that that, that Grant is doing. But he's not saying, you know, you know, I mean, one of his big heroes, well, heroes, per, persons whose uh, thought he really wrestled with was Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Because he was yeah. trying to find out, like, what, what are the roots of this way of thinking? Not that Jean-Jacques Rousseau had it all thought out and knew this was, we were going to, Come to World War II if we followed exactly mm-hmm. the trajectory of his thinking. Of course not. Already he was thinking within a society that he was, uh, um, he was pushing against the 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 limits that, you know, in in the name of a kind of a justice. But he couldn't imagine those limits not really being there. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So we all are working within the history, the the epochs that we're given to 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 be in and to think and to
1: act in. Um, I don't know who's mm-hmm. who and who's what. You Do you want to moderate? Uh,
3: I'll, oh, I'll just look around. Sure, yeah, you just. Okay. I mean, it's, okay. It's pretty free flow. Okay.
1: No we'll one's go with you first. Really All right. Uh, it's a pretty quick question. Yeah. For George Grant, who I've never heard of him, don't know yeah. anything about Barbara Right. He um, did he, like, he seems to look at the epoch that he's living in uh, quite negatively. or um, well, that's what I heard from, like, mm-hmm. he's kind mm-hmm. of, he's concerned yeah. about what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Does he look to any point in history as a point of light or a civilization that is to be admired because like from what I, I could I was trying to think through the ones that I'm aware of and i I couldn't from his standpoint come up with anything better than where he was living in the day
0: well i I mean that that's that that would uh, I, not as far as I know, does he ever say yes? I wish I was born in fifteenth century Venice. Mm. Um, although that might have been interesting. <laughs> um, so he's not a romantic. Mm. You know, he's not saying that there was a golden age at okay. some point. Uh, but I think he thinks that um, he would ask you, "What do you mean by better?" Mm. Certainly, people didn't have as long as life expectancies and things like that. But Mm -hmm. um, do you want to define better by something quantitative or qualitative? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think he would say, I think to be really human, we're not talking about quantitative better, but qualitative better. Mm -hmm. I think it was Bonhoeffer who said, uh, no Christian needs to live past the age of 36. (laughs) <laughs> uh, what did he mean by that he meant you should have done all you need to do in a, in a way by that time and the rest is just clinging on to life I don't know if he really meant that but that's what he, he said um, but my point being to, we, uh, we tend to think that the longer your life is the better it is uh, but uh, that's, that's, that's not how if you look in history people thought People would always like a long life, but they put themselves in situations that wasn't very conducive to that all the time Mm -hmm. um, because they thought that there was, in fact, something more important than long life. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, can I ask a question? Okay, I love it.
6: So what, what do you think... I mean, maybe you've already said that, but can you explain again? What do you think is the difference between a modern um, will-to-power, will-to-will, a, will, a modern, like, yeah. strive for limitlessness and this complete kind of freedom. What is the difference between that to an ancient understanding of Hebris, of, of the the ancient myth, and, uh, you know, you have it in the Garden of Eden. Why do they need to... Yeah, you have it in the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel, the Garden of Eden, Greek mythology, the very common understanding of men trying to do something that achieves no real good other than because they can and because they, you know, they don't trust or they, whatever it is, but hubris um,
0: well I think uh, a, a number of things um, one um, those myths um, were there in order um, to reaffirm and reestablish a sense of, the, of order so it was a warning to human beings not to do those things and so um, the whole society was built around that taboo the very fact is, is we, th- what Grant is saying, those taboos are now lost, we, we don't have those taboos, in fact we celebrate rather than have taboos um, of limits that you shouldn't, um, shouldn't trespass so, so that's what I would say the difference is of course there's always been a tendency to do to, to, to hubris to pride, okay, then, yeah. then I sort of have a twofold. Question. Yeah yeah oh,
6: right, okay. right, right okay. So, okay sorry. So and when you're saying that, um, ag- against all um odds, there's still, you know, love in a modern age, <laughs> 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 um, and there's still like for me how how I best see that in a way is that where we stop pushing against limits or we actually don't do what we actually could do, often comes, uh, you see that when when people love in a sacrificial way. Like, you know, a mother loves her child in a sacrificial way, right? There's sacrifice involved. But you could, of course, also argue that even that is completely selfish, that even even in our in our love, in our sacrifices, we still basically um, just fulfill ourselves fulfill our own uh, will. Yeah. So. Kierkegaard. Yeah, but then, but then, in a way, said. then they romantic no love, love is
0: love. romantic love is selfish love, because yeah. you, you know.
6: Yeah, but I'm not just talking about romantic love. I'm even talking about what yeah. we consider sacrificial yeah. sacrificial love for children, because there's lots of people who th- who think that well, who absolutely you know convinced that their sacrificial love for their children is just for their children, but really, actually, it reflects their own. Their own love, right?
0: Yes, yeah, I understand. It's a self, yeah. self-fulfillment yeah. in their
6: children, right, or whatever you would call it. So, so, but then, is there real hope? I mean, if it's if it's all.
0: Okay, I think I to... think he's just saying uh, something that we. Uh, uh, I mean, you can you 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 can interpret things really really bleakly. Anything you really want to interpret, but what he's saying is. Um, Do we have experiences um, of things that we can't contain within our um, categories of thought? Experiences of transcendence. We do privately. You know, I had a conversion experience. It changed my whole life. Um, That was an experience of transcendence, but it's not something that I can say... um, People, people have a sense of, of limits like as I say like the whole argument around not using human embryos for stem cell research there was lots of people saying this is a limit we should not be passing and but there's they have no foothold within the public debate uh, that's, that's the main point it's just you know these are private I mean uh, our sense of our ethics are private like you know just because you don't want to do it doesn't mean mm-hmm. I shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, these are So there's no like real limits there. There are limits that you set for yourself. Or there might be limits that we set for ourselves as a society too. Like um, we shouldn't impose our will to prevent another person expressing their own will. Um, but those are limits we've just imposed upon ourselves. They're not limits that are built into the universe.
1: Uh, just while you're talking, I'm just thinking of, like, how, um, you know, uh, one of the major catchphrases of our postmodern era is, like, social construct, and, like, how um, Grant sort of prophesized this in, in the PCUN, and you um, just quoted, like, the uh, how we've atomized and analyzed all our morals and philosophies down to naught. And you can sort of hear this reflected in our moral language nowadays, just in terms of, like, the rise of the word inappropriate we no longer say it, like, like things are good or bad, or like, mm-hmm. I work in a drop-in center, I saw like someone like one of the clients pour coffee over another client, he was told that was inappropriate by one of my colleagues. <laughs> you know, when you say something's inappropriate, that also automatically applies that there's an appropriate situation for that, so mm-hmm. like, um, <laughs> like <laughs> there will be like, if we're, if we're there's, there's a time
0: a and a place to <laughs> pour hot coffee over your <laughs> friends. Re- <laughs> 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 <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I just, just feel like you know, that—that's that, just kind of like where we're at right now. Like any kind of, you know, I, I had this conversation in the sauna the other night. <laughs> oh, just like no, just like you know, like you know, any kind of like moral philosophy—you plug yourself in, you've chosen that, or you've, or you've like the, the system has brought you into a place where that's the thing for you. And so, like, there's always this like cognitive uh that, you, no matter where you are in the world, that seems to be like that. Uh, you've either been co-opted by the system or like you've invoked the system but there's never like the sense of an independent mm-hmm. um, transcendental order whatever. Everything's like you've uh, either been like um, uh, swallowed by it or you've chosen yourself to step into it. I think that's very much like the, the, the public uh, perception of these of, of uh, the question of transcendence now. It's either like well you've been brainwashed or you've like decided to be brainwashed, but it never like this sensation that it's like an independent thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, uh, there's there's no there's no real capital T truth. There's only just like this bunch of little T truths like like, oh, mm-hmm. truth, that you truth. like this truth like that truth. I,
0: I just wanted to say that I think it's important um, when when Grant said it, it says at the very beginning of that essay um uh, uh, platitude. We can hold in our minds the enormous benefits of technological uh, society. He meant that. I mean, he meant that there are things that we gain, and like he sometimes would write about uh, his wife, like um, what what, you know, it um, technological has brought about the women's movement, and he appreciated that for his wife. Um, He so so there. He's not saying that there are no goods uh, that that. that our modern society has brought us, um, or modernity has brought us, not at all. He's not, he's not painting it. But what he's saying is something much more subtle than that. I mean, he's not. He's saying something much more subtle than that. That um, we are able to articulate the goods, um, but are there losses that we are not able to articulate? Um, and he found those losses very dangerous. So, I think he would be able to find, you know, uh, within his own tradition, a a reason why there should have been something like a woman's movement outside of modernity. But the fact is, is that modernity, it came with modernity, Um, too.
7: Yeah? Um, I'm trying to wrap my mind around, like, I I can't think of the level you were speaking of. Uh, This philosophy is difficult for me to... Uh, to I have to read in. this stuff a lot. In order <laughs> to... But I'm trying to uh, think about, like, in Canada, um, this sort of situation of our, um, of the way we see sexuality now. And I'm thinking in terms of, like, even kids, young kids, middle schoolers. Um, I've been grappling with this for a while, but we have some friends that their children are in middle middle school and the situation there now is that like everyone sees themselves as bisexuals that's where you start out with mm-hmm. and then you figure out from there and and the parents were like well mm-hmm. not everybody could see themselves as bisexuals and they're like yeah no that's just where we start now if you're bisexual in middle school and then you just figure it out from there and I'm trying to like I'm astonished. Like I, I, I just keep being so astonished, and <laughs> but it seems like there's lots of people my age that aren't astonished. Mm-hmm. They're just like this is so sort of par for the course, or isn't this great, or um, this is where. Yeah. And so I'm trying to figure out from what Grant, like how he would see that, and where we're at with yeah. that, because I'm just I can't get over it um, that it's just. Change so quickly, and everybody sort of seems to think that this is the new normal. But I'm still kind of thinking of like what is good and this is bad. <laughs> and uh, yeah,
0: yeah. These are these are definitely conundrums we are facing. Um, I mean, I know what Grant would say. He would say, or I believe I know what Grant would say. Um, he would say. Um, that this is uh another sign of our Mm -hmm. technological consciousness Mm -hmm. that we believe that we can create um gender regardless of the givens of biology Mm -hmm. um and Mm -hmm. so we can uh and that's that is how we define freedom Mm -hmm. that we are free to do that and that's um, so when, when those parents that you're talking about are saying that um, that isn't this good um, they're mm-hmm. giving voice to um, what our age has told us um, is in fact good mm-hmm. um, so they're not wrong um, but some of us and the reason I, why I read Grant is I, I have trouble with that I think well mm-hmm. Um how what what is the definition of good? Mm-hmm. Um that's mm-hmm. that is presupposed mm-hmm. in saying to a bunch of, you know, prepubescent kids mm-hmm. that you're all um bisexual? What is mm-hmm. the what is what are how are we imagining that's contributing to uh human flourishing? Mm-hmm. There is So there is a thought embedded there, Mm -hmm. you know, and um, so part of thinking with Grant is to try to uncover Mm -hmm. what those thoughts are, what is the definition of human flourishing Mm -hmm. that's presupposed and embedded in those kinds of decisions
8: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, something I've been thinking about since the beginning of your talk, which I think is related to what Julia just said, um I think one of the reasons for those kind of shifts is is this prioritizing of the individual story mm-hmm. and so i i can't remember the exact terms you used but when you're talking about this um like scientism way of thinking yeah where everything is has to be empirical and data driven uh i think i think there's like a push and a reaction against that mm-hmm. or, or maybe there's a, a link that i'm not seeing here um and it's i i've been reading this article it's it's called the New Storytellers, and it's um, it's basically a booklet, not an article, but it's it's talking about how the the rise um, specifically in Christian circles, um, post-evangelical Christian circles, of the personal narrative being the way that people absorb mm-hmm. theology, basically, mm-hmm. um, and and so especially with the rise of the internet, people who have no theological training and may not be part of a church community. Um, they don't have to go through a publisher or anything. Um, but if their voice becomes popular, then people listen to them because their story, um, if their story um, has resonance with people, mm-hmm. then then that's <laughs> that holds the weight of authority for them. So um, so yeah, I think that's really interesting and, and I see that point. Um, and I think, you know, I just had a long chat with a friend about this, some of the, this gender stuff. And I think, you know, her her point was, you know, it's about empathy. And so, so and that's what the, this guy was saying in this article, is like empath- the, the value of empathy, I know George Grant doesn't like the word value, but, mm-hmm. but it's, that's driving a lot of this. It's like we need to be empathetic mm-hmm. to people's stories, and we can't understand someone else's story, so we have to give them the control over their own story, basically. Um, so I would see that as like, yeah, that's one of the, that's one of the values mm-hmm. that's behind this. Um, and, also, and because we don't feel like there are universals, we have to value a person's story. <laughs> that's, the universal value is a person's story, especially if it has emotional resonance with us.
0: Um, yeah, I, 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 um, but you've just named the link right there. Because there is no universal meaning, um, meaning is privatized. So uh, that's why in the secular society... Um, you can believe whatever you want to believe in the privacy of your own home, but you can't bring that into public debate. You can't. You can't say, um, you know, just just look at the election we just had. You get slaughtered if you if you even say, yes, what I what I believe, um, I I actually create policy around. You, know, you have to. Like, so so um, so we're. We because there's no we we agree that there's no um, meaning in a public sphere, we retreat to the or we're forced to retreat to the uh, private sphere Mm -hmm. uh, to create um, meaning, but meaning's not private. Like uh, um, that's just kind of a nihilism. Actually, I mean, uh, all we are reduced to is feelings. Mm -hmm. Um, So that. uh, unless we believe that our feelings are in tune with something that is more than just private. Um, and that's, that's the point. So, uh, yes, you can be empathetic with people, um, um, uh, but at the same time, uh, I, I don't see how that escape into, um, our domestic selves, our private selves, um, actually solves our private narratives mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, solves the problem of meaning.
8: I think it actually doesn't stay private, because that's, that's <coughs> what i was talking about. It's like, yeah, as a, as a religious person, you can't say, oh, I believe this about God and not inform public policy, but if you say, like, I, I feel this about my identity, yeah, it can shape public policy, and we're seeing it do that in Canada. You know, that you...
0: But I... I, 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 but I I, I don't agree with you that I, it it is shaping public policy in Canada but that's only because we all recognize that there um that the private is everything I mean without it we have no sense of self anymore but um but I think that uh I think that actually gives voice to the co- deeply to the, to the nihilism of our, that we live um, that we're um, because we are, we are in that sense r- really isolated from one another I mean one of the things about any um, tradition ought to be that we're not isolated mm-hmm. but we are bound together with, in, a, in, a, in a story that's greater than our own story And that's what shapes our lives and gives us meaning. Um, But this retreat into personal narrative um, is a recognition that that's become impossible. Uh, And I mean, I I find it so sad, to be quite honest. I mean, it really, like, Mm -hmm. that's the saddest thing of all that we can't share the fact Mm -hmm. that we're living together under the umbrella of a greater story. Mm -hmm. Um, But our. Reduced to our own stories. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Brett,
0: do you want
1: to say something? I was just going to say, what, what, because one of the attempts at a greater story is Canadian values. Right. And uh, yeah. mm-hmm. actually, uh, just as a sidebar, it was interesting 20 years ago when I was looking at this, I actually saw a paper with Quebec values, yeah, 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 <coughs> which yeah. were being taught in school. <coughs> Uh, so now it's interesting yeah. that uh, Quebec values and Canadian values actually uh, are are at odds with each oh, other. But what would uh, Grant have said about Canadian values? And does this whole idea of Canadian values is that an attempt to kind of set a global picture? Or
0: right? Well, you I, obviously I need to say something about what Grant thought about values. Um, so f- for Grant, um, val, um, the language of values w- was. Um, Purely um, the language of our technological consciousness. Because values are things we create. We no longer talk about goodness. Mm -hmm. We talk about values. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, so that is our way of imposing um, meaningfulness uh, on our world. Um, So values are uh, the language of imposition
1: language of imposition
0: language. of of self self creation um so already i think that when we talk about canadian values um grant would have nothing to do with that kind of language no um no. Um, th- 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 these are just yes. There, there, there are such a things. If we agree that there are such things as Canadian values, then there are such things as Canadian values. If we don't agree that there are such things as Canadian values, there aren't. That, that's that's what the language of values mean. Um, so we're at war here um, around the language of values, but that's just a war of wills. Mm-hmm of how we want to impose our vision of the world over another vision of the world. its a, If that's the clash of values. Um, we're not asking um, what I would call, but he never uses that word as far as I know, metaphysical uh, question about what is good, about being human or what, what defines our goodness as human.
1: Yeah?
3: Yes. I just think it's so interesting that Grant has, I mean, it's almost like a puzzle or a riddle or a maze that he's saying we're in an inescapable framework, that's Charles Taylor's language, but mm-hmm. an inescapable moral framework. He, he, I guess Grant would say we're in an inescapable linguistic framework. And or
0: moral, uh, I think. And, and have no I mean, not to, not to yeah.
3: exclude moral. Uh, but the terms are defined for us, mm-hmm. and even in polarization that we see Trump and then anti-Trump, I mean, all that is encoded mm-hmm. in this language and morality mm-hmm. that the Christian can find difficulty speaking into because it's not a language that we that we we are we are enculturated to. But we have this alternative story, mm-hmm. alternative language, but trying to. To bridge those, to try to allow that word to enter in, you know, as Christ enters into this world as the Word, but a Word that is not yet ready to receive, uh, is not unable to recognize it. And I just, I, my question is more an appreciation for Grant is is his posture toward Canada, his posture toward culture and society, is that he's trying to find a way of naming it. Without, without being allowed to you know,
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, because the language is not there or it's not permissible. And so he's pointing at that which cannot be named. Mm-hmm. but there's a but he has this it seems
4: and it's part of a question is it seems that he
3: has a great belief that humanity or each human person can sense that that, that they sense that there's something there. That there is something lost. There is an intimation of deprival. There is mm-hmm. there is a whisper of the thing that is lost. Um, even if it's um, something that we cannot remember. You know, T.S. Eliot was quite good about mm-hmm. saying those kind of things. Um, and he, he seems quite good at doing, like you said, the negative uh, approach. But... Mm-hmm. I find it now difficult and this and I'm asking for wisdom here is okay, it seems easier as a Christian. I can say, okay, this is what's lost. You know, I can see a sense of humanity lost, or the exploitation of the land or uh, fascism, you know, but it's harder to say, okay, but this is the language that should correct correct the language that we're now using what might we put in it's positive where where can we be positive and say okay I've intonated